Welcome to Friars and Film. We are three Catholic priests from the Order of Preachers, and we're here, as always, to talk about the movies. Today we are looking at Bicycle Thieves. It is also known to a lot of American audiences as The Bicycle Thief. Yeah, Bicycle Thieves is indeed the original Italian, or a translation of that anyway. And uh, But yeah, when it came out in U.S. audiences, apparently it became known as simply the Bicycle Thief, uh, singular. It's interesting that there's ambiguity on that title, because it's a pretty important difference. about if it's, just, if it's called Bicycle Thieves, it is immediately interesting and engaging, because it makes you realize, oh wow, wait, there's multiple Bicycle Thieves, and therefore maybe... It's not only the guy who steals the bike in the middle of the movie, but maybe it's the guy who's the protagonist as well. Um, if it's just the singular, the bicycle thief, it makes you think, oh, wow, maybe th that is like the chief identity of the protagonist, that, that he kind of becomes the bicycle thief. Small point, but uh, kind of interesting. Uh, this was made in 1948, uh, directed by a fellow named Vittorio De Sica. I'll just uh, say right off the bat, um, the first thing that jumps out to me in this relatively simple movie about a working class man trying to get a job and um, having the opportunity to get a job only on the condition that he has a bike and then losing his bike um, from someone stealing it and then trying to deal with the aftermath. Um, to me, what, what immediately jumped out is just what a big deal the boy is in, in the movie. In it, the, so so I, I, this was my second time watching it, and uh, I saw it for the first time when I was myself a relatively small small uh, kid. I, I, I had forgotten that this boy is such an important figure in the story. And in a sense, the boy doesn't do anything. No, the boy literally is just following his dad around. They share some conversation. But mostly the boy is just, he's constantly looking up at his dad and just kind of following where the dad goes. So it's such a small, minor character. And yet, if you imagine the whole movie without the boy, it's, it's, it's a, like a radically different, different movie. And I think what the boy adds is that it, it's sort of like a, the whole film is, is a matter of, of seeing adult pain and fear and suffering from the perspective of a child. And so that adults going through pain and suffering, that, that is always you know painful and brings some kind of suffering to the viewer in, in some sense. But to experience an adult going through pain and suffering and fear um, from the perspective of a child is I think even more scary. And I think probably all of us can remember times in our childhood where not only were we afraid or scared or, or something, but like we saw our parents or maybe some other adult anxious or deeply sad. And from a child's perspective to see a, a, an adult sort of destabilized in that way is like a deeply upsetting experience. And so, yeah, it just, it just adds like a deeper level of, of pain and tragedy, I think, to the story, to always be watching it from the boy's eyes. Uh, you also experience the hope 
of the beginning of the movie, you know, like, and there's that way, way in which like the boy is always kind of mirroring his dad. Like you remember when the dad is all excited to go out and, and work in this new job, uh, there, the boy is just as excited as the dad is and he's getting, the boy's getting ready like the dad is. And uh, there's that very particular detail of the boy, uh, combing his own hair, putting gel in his hair, like he's a little man. And, uh, that was just a very, very sort of touching little detail. And, uh, but then, yeah, to then watch the boy begin to experience his dad's own suffering and pain, um, it introduced a whole new level, like I said, of, of tragedy to the drama. Therefore, in a sense, I feel like the boy is kind of the, the hidden center of the story, um, perhaps in a way even more than, than the dad is. What, what, are, what are your thoughts? That, that sounds right to me. Yeah, the... The boy is a huge part. I think as I was watching the film and as I saw the the title is plural, Thieves, Bicycle Thieves, I was wondering when is the second thief going to appear or when are the other thieves going to show up? And I think that the second thief is the, the protagonist, but I think it's sort of saying that even the protagonist, even the best guy can become a, a thief and that therefore this is a kind of allusion to original sin and how everyone is is capable of thievery. And I think you're right, Luke, I hadn't really thought about that, that the innocence of the boy really shows up the fallenness of the entire world because it's we're sort of used to seeing adults suffer and struggle and squalor. But to see children there, it really makes you think, wow, things aren't really going well. This isn't really how it's supposed to be. Yeah. So I think there's there's original sin, there's a fallenness, and yeah, the boy is kind of the, the perspective from which this is revealed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I thought, Father Luke, that's a great opening meditation, for, especially as you're mentioning the boy's perspective on his father. Um, I can remember when I was a kid, probably I was about 10, and my paternal grandfather died, and I remember seeing my dad... Uh, cry at the wake and that was a, like that was a big moment for me as a 10 year old to see my dad break down because I had never quite seen that before and it kind of I mean you're these kids at a funeral so you're you're playing with your cousins in Chicago around the water cooler and like the mints at the funeral home and like the lobby furniture like you're actually as kids unable to face those realities so you're going to go and play in the lobby you know but there were a few moments where we all noticed our parents, and my dad wasn't the only one among his brothers and sisters to break down. And I do think that's a great starting meditation is that the perspective of a child um, is really fixated on moments when adults come. Yeah, you, you, you think, you just think your dad is strong and invincible. I think everyone, every child, their instincts at least point that way. Um, I think there's a hint there. Maybe this seems like a stretch, but we are all Christians. We can talk about these things. There's something about the sorrow of Good Friday, and that may seem very far afield from from this movie, but there's something about those who followed Christ in a childlike way, namely all of his followers, and who were for a brief time kind of confused. Like, I mean, you could take the disciples on the way to Emmaus. He approaches them. What were you speaking about on the way? And it says, we thought, have you, are you the only one who's not heard? You know, they go on and on. They said, but we thought he would have been the one. Like, there's this childlike disappointment 
in the powerful one who has who has fallen and and um i think uh in christ that is reversed and whatever small difficulties or disappointments are immediately resurrected and we realize he is lord it's not the case with normal grown-ups um but i do think there's a discovery of original sin that we have in our own parents and that is actually kind of yeah, it it, be, it can you know it begins with this boy, especially when he comes back at the end and he sees his dad trying to steal a bicycle now, you know, and then getting there's just sort of like this loss of innocence. I think that's powerful in terms of like I don't know many movies that pay attention to childhood psychology and hopes and disappointments. I want to also say this for fun. I want to talk about two stories of of real bicycle thieves. Like I know this gets away from the film. But this, it's 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 a brief aside. First off, we have a fellow friar in our province, Father Innocent Smith, who went to undergraduate at Notre Dame. And apparently at Notre Dame, I mean, probably most college campuses, bicycle thieving was um, was common enough. So he he had his bicycle stolen, and and kind of like he had gone to campus security, just like this dad, and they just shrugged their shoulders, like, "What do you want from us?" You know. Um, and there's sort of the breakdown of the system. He did find his bike across campus one day. I don't know if he had the lock already or the guy had cut it, but basically he triumphantly took his bike back. It's a total death and resurrection narrative on Notre Dame's campus. <laughs> but I will say this too. Um, Philadelphia, which I used to, where I used to live and which is a, still, I believe, a deeply wild place, there was a lot of bike thieving and there were bike shops that would just openly sell stolen bikes. I mean, they, they couldn't trace them at all. And I actually, I had seen multiple times guys in the late afternoon, we're not even talking about the cover of darkness, who are on bikes themselves and they're carrying on their shoulders stolen bike parts that they just ripped off of like nice neighborhoods and they're just riding down the middle of the street uh, with nobody to correct them. So these are meditations I uh, also carried to this podcast. Thank you. I also want to share a similar meditation. It, it it always moves me to pity when I walk past a like a lamp, some lamp post or something in a in an urban setting, and you see a bike there that has just been torn to shreds. You know, like both tires are missing, the seat is missing, uh, maybe even the handlebar is missing. Like everything that can be taken off of it has been taken off of it, and you, I always feel like I'm sort of passing this like a skeleton chained in a cave or something. It's like, wow, this used to be a bike. Now it's just, it's just a, the bare bones of it. And, and some so. of these bikes are, have been there for years. <laughs> right. Like the and they're not going anywhere. They're just going to be chained there forever. It's just uh, yeah, it's a, a horrible sight. To, regarding the boy. Um, yeah. I mean, you, you both mentioned the scene where he, he goes, you know, he sees his dad fall in a way, you know, become the bicycle thief. You know, what does he do? He Well, he sees his dad, you know, being surrounded by the people who are trying to bring about justice to the bicycle thief. He's, that dad is surrounded by a mob, kind of. And and the boy just, he runs, like, just instinctively, he just runs to his dad, grabs his hand, and just starts crying. That was uh, just very moving. And, and what it reminded me of is just something that I've often reflected on about childhood, which is that as an, as an adult, if I am with people who I don't really approve of or who I don't like being with necessarily, I, I can just leave. I, I don't need to stay in their company, right? Whereas for a child, 
you know, when, when you're born into a family, I mean, it's just like, those are your people. And as it, until you're an adult, there's nowhere to go. And they are the ones that you have to stay with. And, you know, there, and, and, and it's sort of a painful moment when a child begins to notice the flaws of their own family and their shortcomings. And, and, um, and yet the, the child has, it's impossible for them to put any distance between themselves and their family members um, when they begin to notice ways in which they may not be appearing in a favorable light, you know? And so um, this, this little scene really spoke to me of that, you know, just that the boy sees his father suddenly becoming the bicycle thief. And yet there's nowhere to go except to run to the dad and to just, Hold, hold his hand and to share in the sort of not like now the family shame of, of that experience. Yeah, there's different ways of looking at the commitment of the boy. On the one hand, you could think of him like a dog, you know, so your dog is going to love you and be loyal to you regardless of what kind of person you are, mm. as long as you feed it, you know. But then also God, you know, who's above human beings, whereas the dog is below also has his own kind of unconditional love for you. And I, th I think the child you know, reflects both of those things as, as kind of involuntary, natural commitment, but also a kind of sublime, personal one. And um, on the one hand, the boy is always, always looking at the father, especially as they're out in the world together, because the boy has no ability to navigate you know, everything to him is just strange and out of his control. And so he's totally dependent on the, on the, the father who's always looking out. The father yeah. never looks back or, or rarely looks back right. at Bruno and even, you know, neglects him to a certain extent, perhaps. Yeah. But of course, as the father is looking out, he is looking out, you know, at least in some sense for the, the whole family. Right. So as the father is looking out at the horizon, looking for the thief and so on. He's actually looking in his heart towards his family, um, at least partially. But then at the end, when, when the boy notices his father stealing, I think the boy becomes a kind of reference point for the father. Hmm. The entire movie, he has been leading the boy, but then the boy, in a sense, becomes the conscience of the hmm. father. Hmm. And I thought that was interesting because if you think of, for example, I think Freud is, is often associated with this idea that it's your parents and authority figures who instill in you morality and ethics. Your super ego is like the voice of your, of your parents. But what if your conscience is like the voice of, of a child and this child has a kind of authority hmm. to speak to you? Antonio weeps at the end. There's, a, there's some remorse there and also kind of gratitude for the crowd's mercy or the, or the man's mercy. So, yeah, I would just note that shift that the boy is so dedicated and so attentive to his father as a leader, and then the roles shift there at the end. Mm -hmm. But I think the, the attentiveness, just the first part of that, of the boy to his father, is just notable in itself. Like, yeah. thinking about my own life and how when I was a, you know, a boy, my father was like everything. Yeah. You know, My father <laughs> dictated for me how you should act in every situation. You know, you always look to dad and see what he's doing to find out what's what, you know, what's really going on. I want to raise a quick um, comment on genre. So this is, I guess this is classified as neorealism, which was sort of a new thing for Italian film. Um, so not so much this amazing story with twists and turns and characters, but sort of let's put in, let's depict real life. 
the length of a film. I think also of um, of, of a couple of films. I mean, La Promesse, which we had done earlier, the Belgian immigration story. I think of other ones we haven't done, like the Florida Project came out with Willem Dafoe a couple years ago, and it's just about poor families living in this project housing, and he's their landlord. I'm really a big fan, but I wouldn't say these... The, I, there's never a movie in this genre that moves me so much where I'm saying this is the ultimate of film. These are my favorites. But there is something about sort of, it's almost like the scope of a short story instead of a novel. It's sort of like a, a, a depiction of how life is and their interesting moments. I think, too, not only the genre of neorealism, um, but in addition to that, the themes involved. This reminded me, too, of some Chaplin, Charlie Chaplin themes, sort of how man can feel in the industrial era like a cog in the wheel. Like, this whole plot is driven by the fact that he doesn't have a job and he's going to just do advertising. People could sell more things, you're going to put posters up. And of arguably lurid right. content. You know. And I don't think that that's just a theme of, you know, the the 20s with Chaplin, nor of the 50s and 60s with this film. I mean, even to this day, you know, I'm, I'm at a new assignment up here at Dartmouth College. You know, smart students, Ivy League. These kids are brought in to the university system and told, you know, you can study literature and history and publishing. And yet at the end of the day, the vast majority are, are the only real avenues are either medicine, finance, or finance. Like there, there's just a, there are a lot of like physics majors and literature majors that just go work in finance and they work 80 hours a week. Like there's, there's, there's something about the American landscape post-agrarian once we got off the farmland. And I'm not saying let's all move back that way. I have no grand theories about this. But there's, I, I find it impressive that spanning a full century from the 1920s until now, this theme resonates. Finding a job and meaningful work, and let me say, the, the, the near impossibility of that for a majority of people, I do think that theme resonates a century later. Mm-hmm. So, Watching the film, I found myself wondering if, if it was if it had any connections to like communist propaganda or something. And uh, just because it seems like a film, a film that's very intense on the failures of capitalism, you know, it starts off with people without their jobs and you have these sort of corporate moguls who are indifferent to the plight of the working man, private property issues <laughs> with things like bikes being stolen and the desire for a bike, the bike is a commodity and the difficulty of maintaining and keeping your private property uh, you also have, you know, when when he does get this job, you know, what is it? it? Like you were mentioning, Father Timothy, it's just sort of the, the banality of an advertising job. There is, I think it's 30 minutes into the film, when he goes down and sees that theater rehearsal. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, a hammer and sickle on a poster in the background. Okay. And then one of the actors, I think, says that this is not a meeting. It's not a meeting of communists. Oh, okay. okay. And I think people are starting to come in. So yeah, that that's always a, um, a possibility. The first crowd of the film is kind of depressing too, because remember he's almost randomly picked right. out of this this crowd, and the whole movie is about the drama of whether he's going to be able to fulfill this job. Well, what about that whole crowd back there? They didn't even get the chance, you know. Yeah, right. Whether yeah, exactly. they have a bike is not even. 
Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think crowds are a big part of it. Um, like, th- there's the first crowd, and then there's the second crowd that defends the thief, and then there's the, the third crowd at the end that chases the protagonist down. Crowds are, I don't know, a feature of modern urban life. I mean, they're uh, it's it's hard to say what's exactly modern about this because you always have crowds, I guess. But um, but it's just a bigger and I bigger guess, city and bigger and bigger. Um, organizations that are employing people so you have more possibility yeah. of feeling lost yeah. in a crowd. I mean, one thing you notice is just the dullness of crowds. You know, they, they don't, they can't really think clearly. And, you know, once they take a stance, that's just kind of it, you know, right. so they defend the guy kind of based merely on localism, which is, you know, respectable enough, you know, in the middle crowd. And then at the end, they, they do chase the guy down. But then there's a kind of random act of mercy. Yeah, crowds are just something you have to deal with. Can I return to something that you mentioned a minute ago, Father Timothy, about the genre of the film? So you were mentioning how it's connected to neorealism, so-called. And uh, I I want to make another genre connection, which is um, to connect this movie to the noir genre so we've seen a few of those films as well like with the third man and uh i don't know maybe that's the only only one that we've watched but um but yeah i love watching noir movies and and this this movie felt like a kind of like a family noir movie like 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 the noir genre but set in a kind of domestic setting like every every noir movie this is a it's sort of someone solving an urban crime mystery and roaming the streets of a, um, a sort of soulless city trying to come to the solution of a crime that's been committed. But also like a, like a noir movie, you know, he, you have to do that. You solve the crime by journeying through this sort of criminal underworld where you have to mix with some shady people who are at the margins of sort of kind of conventional urban life and so you see this right away when the first thing he does is he goes into that sort of crypt kind of basement sewer area where there's that theater production going on he meets these vaudeville actors and and you know he's trying to find someone who has a connection someone who who can get him out of this fix someone who has these this these this awareness of who's who and and how to solve the problem um he also does the same thing by finding the the, this sort of fortune teller wise woman to help him through um, and give him sort of street smart advice uh but then finally and to me this is the most salient connection is just the fact that um one of the biggest features of the course of every noir movie is that the protagonist is trying to fix an injustice and yet in their attempts to fix the injustice all they end up doing is just making matters worse and that's definitely you know what's what's happening here you know he's sort of for a lot of the film he's just kind of like a disruptor he he he's he's just disrupting the church service it's impossible for people to actually worship there because he's disrupting that he goes to the neighborhood to find the uh, the guy and he the, the the first thief and he disrupts that neighborhood and he even causes the thief to have an epileptic fit. Um, you begin to feel like he's the one who's committing the injustice by trying to pursue this question. Uh, and indeed, he then he then becomes the villain himself. 
um, kind of like how uh, you know in the third man you know who is the third man uh, well it's 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 the protagonist himself he is the one who's who's the murderer in the end and uh, indeed the, the protagonist here ends no better than he began let me ask an uneducated so, um, question briefly is Batman kind of based on film noir you know city with crime and yeah, it's definitely connected to it, and um, in particular, the Christopher Nolan um, trilogy was understood to be very intentionally underlining and, and, and emphasizing that noir element to Gotham City. I also want to, on a side comment, refer readers or listeners to read Plato's Republic Book 6, which I was just going over, which talks a lot, as Father Allen, you are saying, about the crowd. The crowd's a major factor, and he talks about how Socrates is saying how it takes an incredible amount of formation and luck that a few of the youths might escape the power of like the crowd's applause and exaggerations. It's really this realistic comment on like this is a major factor in life, and it's just it's just always present. I think it's actually a very very intelligent commentary on that whole aspect of life. Hey, any other parting thoughts before we, we wrap up today? I, I just want to ask it. about the seer. What, what do, you, do you have anything interesting to say about that, anybody? I don't really. I, I'm just kind of wondering, what is her significance in the film? Does it just represent kind of the desperation of the people? I also wonder if it's part of the neorealism where like people would just consult these people and it's part of Italian culture, you know? I think these people are trying to get your money. And they say things like that. Okay. They say these riddles that seem that seem okay. mostly true. That was my take. It's always been my take on seers, fortune tellers, soothsayers, yeah. and I also follow all biblical injunctions to steer clear of them. You can that's see me. That but as that's all, me. As, as pushing him to steal a little bit because you know he feels like if if I don't steal it now, I'll never get a bike. But yeah, no. That all that that spoke to me of was the fact that. Uh, it's you know his wife initially goes to that seer and he dismisses it as a ridiculous thing to do, and that he's he himself is driven to such desperate um, state uh, and predicament that he is has to grasp at the straws that he had initially dismissed. It may just be that he committed one of the classic sins of superstition and that just worsened his case. You know, led him to steal. That's an idea. You know, like Saul. Like Saul in the Bible, he, he consulted yeah. the seer. And Samuel's like, why, he appears. He's like, what have you done? Why are you summoning me? I don't yeah. even want to be summoned. I love that scene. That's one of the best scenes. So next week, we or next time, we're going like 20 years earlier than this, I think, right? And Metropolis is like an old sci-fi movie? Well, I am a little bit scared of metropolis from the pictures i've seen of it but i'm also excited to see what the deal is i'm already bored because i don't like sci-fi but i'll watch it for the sake of our friendship they said that old mother nature was up to her old tricks that's the story that went around but here's the Shake that brought on the Frisco.
so you can put the blame on Maine, boy. Put the blame on Maine. They once had a shooting up in the Klondike.